Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. This week's episode features an interview I had with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Lawson, from his recent visit to Midwestern Seminary. He was here delivering this year's Spurgeon Lectures. Many of you know Dr. Lawson. He serves as president and founder of One Passion Ministries, a teaching fellow of Ligonier Ministries, an accomplished author, and also as professor of preaching and oversees the Doctor of Ministry program at the Master Seminary. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Indeed, this interview I had with Steve Lawson. I thought the first question I would ask you was just a, a word about your call to ministry. And I know the story and where you're thinking law school and connection to Memphis, Bellevue Baptist Church, grip by preaching. I thought these folks may be encouraged by a little bit of your, your own story 40, yeah. years, 40 years ago now. Sure. Um, to start at the bottom line, I was called into the ministry under the preaching of Adrian Rogers. And I actually think I was the first young man called into the ministry once, because I was there when he first came to Bellevue. And he was just a house on fire. Uh, over the years, he would mellow somewhat. But I was in the middle of the front pew, probably starting at age 21, I just sat in the middle of the front pew. In fact, I had to get up when they gave the invitation to clear the room for people to, to be seated who would walk forward every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. And I had already been preaching and teaching, but I had never heard a Bible preacher. I grew up in a liberal Methodist church, and I was always involved in Fellowship of Christian Athletes and, and Young Life, and I was converted at Young Life. But I'd, I never really heard strong, direct, doctrinal, exhortational preaching. And as soon as I heard him preach, it, it really just arrested me. In fact, I was, I was supposed to go to Dallas and, and have a job that was already set up for me. And I heard him one time and canceled the trip and canceled the job. I just have to stay and sit under this preaching. And, and so I will forever be grateful for his, the tenets of his ministry, the, you know, the com commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture, and he really led the conservative resurgence. Every movement needs a voice, and it can't be from behind the scenes, even with the other men who are behind the scenes. There has to be a John Knox blowing the trumpet. And Adrian Rogers was that trumpet blast um, in the SBC. So I will always be grateful for that. And I, I still to this day, I've never heard <clears throat> anyone preach the gospel <clears throat> and call people to faith in Christ any stronger uh, than Adrian Rogers. You know, previous to that, I went to law school for a year, thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I worked, I was a finance major in college. I worked at First National Bank, worked in another political, I worked in a couple of political campaigns, actually. And I, you know, I, I had different options in front of my life. Uh, so it's not like I went into the ministry because there wasn't anything else to do. Um, for me, it was a huge sacrifice in many ways of worldly things, but to gain heavenly things. So it, 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 it was such a compulsion. It's like 1 Timothy 3, 1, 
uh, you know, the, the overseer, you know, he must aspire and desire. And the, the aspiration and desire was like on steroids in me. Uh, just, I, I, I was, I felt like I was shot out of a cannon when I left Bellevue to go to seminary. So what year was that when you first began to hear Dr. Rogers preaching, roughly? Yeah, roughly 72, 73. Okay, so he's there, and is it, you never heard anyone really with <laughs> detail explain the passage? Yeah. Was it that? Was it the passion with which he was doing it? What, what was really arresting to you? Yeah, it was everything. It, what, I'd, I'd never set, I'd never heard someone take a passage of Scripture, let's say it's four or five verses, and just sequentially go through that. Now, he didn't preach through books in the Bible. It was more like Spurgeon, different place every Sunday. But he would take a passage and literally walk through it, and he had an outline that I, I, I see it. And so I, had a, I would have a pad of paper and felt-tip pens. My brother would sit next to me with an open Bible and turn to the verses, and I'm just fiercely taking down notes. And I learned how to preach, really, on the front uh, pew at, at Bellevue, I could see the structure. I could see what an introduction looks like. I could see you explain it, you apply it, you exhort with it, you illustrate it, you, you move on to the next heading. And, and in fact, my dad had a Volkswagen uh, van. And every Sunday morning, I would just drive around the neighborhood. I played football and just go get my old teammates and stuff them into the van and head down to the Bellevue. original bus ministry. Yeah, the original <laughs> bus ministry. That hurts me. But, uh, <laughs> getting our numbers up. Um, you and Jack Hiles. Yeah, that's right. But mine was for real. Um, and um, I mean, I, I, that, that's all I could talk about was what I was hearing. And um, so... I can't even remember the question now. <laughs> that, so, and uh, you, you often now preach primarily and are associated with more Bible church and mm -hmm. you know, kind of reform circles. But just teasing out for a moment, even some of your Southern Baptist intersections mm -hmm. and service. Mm -hmm. um, and while in seminary at Dallas, you, you were yeah. a member at First Baptist Dallas. Yeah. Share a word or two about W.A. Criswell. Oh, my and, word. W.A. Criswell. I mean, I, I'd, I'd have to try to say this without crying. Um, I was at First Baptist Dallas. So I go from Bellevue Baptist Church, Adrian Rogers, to First Baptist Dallas with W.A. Criswell, who, who, who was the lion of Texas. I mean, he, he was bigger than life. It's interesting, the first Christian book I ever bought in my life, I was like 19 years old in college, and I remember walking down to the Baptist bookstore back when it used to be called the Baptist bookstore, right? and going in there, and there's a whole bookstore of books. I, I wouldn't know one from another. All I had was a, was a living Bible, just a New Testament living Bible with pictures in it. And, I, and I'm beginning to speak um, in places, and I knew I needed a Christian book to help me because I didn't even have a study Bible. I didn't have a commentary. I, did, I, I didn't even—the only thing I had was a New Testament living Bible with pictures, and for you talk about, we were talking about the providence of God and God, how God orders our steps. Out of that entire bookstore, somehow, some way, my eye sees a spine, and I pull the book out, and <clears throat> it's by W. A. Crystal. Why I preach the Bible is literally true. Mm. Can you believe that? I mean, I could have just easily pulled out some moronic 
liberal and been seduced, maybe to some extent by that, though 1 John 2 says, you know, those who are born again, the anointing of the Spirit is upon them and they can discern between truth and error. But that was like cannon fodder for me, reading that book. Why I preach the Bible is literally true. And it was just pouring concrete into my backbone and giving me reasons why the Bible is true. And so uh, I went to Southwestern for a year, and this is before the conservative resurgence. It was as liberal as liberal could be. My first day on campus, in fact, at Southwestern, the vice president pulled me aside into his office and said, you're from Bellevue Baptist, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir. He said, I don't want you looking for a liberal under every bush on this campus. Mm -hmm. I said, sir, I'm here to get an education. And basically the message was then just keep it at that. Well, in class, I mean, I had professors denying the eternal security of the believer. I mean, I remember the day we talked about the foolish virgins and the wise virgins, and he's trying to explain that the foolish virgins were actually saved and just a bunch of junk. And I realized I'm in the wrong place. Um, so, you know, I needed to get out of there and find some place that would teach me the Bible because I've been in a Methodist church my whole life. I don't even know the Bible other than what Adrian Rogers has, has taught me. So every Sunday from Fort Worth... I would drive, which was kind of a big deal for me at, the, at that time. I had a little Volkswagen bug. I would drive over to, Fort, uh, to Dallas, to First Baptist Dallas, and sit as close to the front as I could just to hear W.A. Chris will preach on Sunday morning, and then I would go eat lunch and just hang out in the afternoon and be there for Sunday night before I'd drive back to Fort Worth. And in his own way, he was an expositor, um, it depended on the book in the Bible as to how, how much detail he gave at a particular passage. But he had a heart bigger than Texas. I mean, his, you know, I don't give a public invitation to get up out of your seat and walk forward, but I tell you, when he gave one, it was an event. Mm. It, it was an event. And so that just further, from Adrian Rogers to W.A. Criswell, just further solidified the Bible. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's just being nailed down um, in me and a sense of the bigness of, of God. So I, I will always be grateful and thankful for that foundation. So those are the first two men who had any influence whatsoever um, in my life um, as it relates to preaching and ministry. And I, I couldn't have had two greater role models for the pulpit than Adrian Rogers and W.A. Criswell. So I want to keep the theme here uh, kind mm -hmm. of personal for a few minutes. And uh, even the theme kind of about heroes. You know, yeah. Sweet how you've talked about a couple of these heroes. Yeah. And I want to get to John MacArthur and Archie Sproul in a moment because both of them have meant a lot to you over the years. Uh, before that, though, a third Southern Baptist individuals who, who I know was uh, you did not were not as close with personally as the other two you mentioned. But uh, Dr. Jerry Vines, obviously, y'all both pastor the same church mm -hmm. in Mobile for a number of years. Yeah. Say a word about his pulpit ministry. Yeah. And uh, yeah, very much like Adrian Rogers, yet with his own personality, but very strong in convictions. Uh, his feet nailed to the floor. I, I, I think that I admire a preacher who 
things tend to be black and white. Things are non-negotiable. And Jerry Vines was that. And he was very much like Adrian Rogers in the structure of the outline, use of illustrations, cross-references, that kind of thing. And um, he, he was very gracious to me. I remember at one Southern Baptist convention in Dallas, I mean, I sat at a table with him at least two hours and him, him just talking to me. And that was further influence, another voice. And, and I do say this to young men, you need more than one role model because if you're just locked in on one person, you'll get their strengths, you'll also get their blind spots, and you'll also get their weaknesses. And by having a plurality of influences, like I did, though not by design, uh, it helps round you out. And I think it helps you find your own voice because you're not just an echo of just one voice. So yeah, Jerry Vines, and I'll tell you another Southern Baptist is Billy Graham. And I, um, I was heavily involved in the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And I actually spoke at every Billy Graham crusade for a decade that was in North America. And, um, and it's kind of funny even thinking back about this. Um, at many of those crusades, when he would step out of the pulpit, I actually stepped into the pulpit and directed the counselors and the people. He was warming them up for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was kind of my forerunner. That's right. Until <laughs> we get to the good stuff. That's right. We call it a warm-up act, you know, in a concert. Um, so that, that was another imprint. And, I mean, I've, I've been in so many cities with, with Dr. Graham, though I didn't really know him personally, though I've prayed with him, and I did my doctoral dissertation on Billy Graham. Um, nevertheless, just sitting first seat behind him in a stadium of 60,000 people and hearing him preach John 3.16 or John 3 or whatever, I mean, that leaves an impact and an influence. And, and it gives you an evangelistic zeal as well. I mean, that becomes contagious. So, and interestingly enough, when I was in college, I joined... First Baptist Church in college, and my pastor was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Jeroy Weber, mm -hmm. who had been at Dauphin Way. And so in God's strange providence, God allowed me to either be under or rub shoulders with some very prominent men in my formative years, but especially observing, learning from, and really even feeling the impact of strong preaching. And so say a word about John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. You got to know both of them as, as a young man. And yeah. A, a personal relationship. Obviously, Dr. Sproul's with the Lord now. Yeah. Um, say, say a word or two about even the, the timing, perhaps, in your life and ministry when you got to know them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, there's a real sense in which MacArthur is on one shoulder in this ear and Sproul's on the other shoulder in this ear, and I, I carry that influence with me. Yeah, when it came time to do my doctor of ministry, I just read The Holiness of God, and that just blew my mind wide open with an even bigger view of God. And so I decided I want to study wherever this man is teaching. I would have gone anywhere 
And he was teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. So that's where I went. And I never dreamed that I would even ever know him or talk to him, whatever. And without walking you through those steps, I, I developed a relationship that became a very close relationship that became a very, very close relationship to the point that at one point he asked me to succeed him um, as really the head of Ligonier Ministries. And he really poured his life into me. And I, I've eaten so many meals with him and played so many rounds of golf with him that I couldn't even begin to even try to put a number on that. At one point, he had asked me to preach his funeral. Um, and what he provided for me, interestingly enough, was not the theology, though I learned a lot of theology from him, but was the polish that I needed. I kind of knew enough to be dangerous at that point. And I had... You know, I could even be needlessly provocative at the wrong points with the wrong things. And he really he helped prune me and polish me. And more than anything else, he gave me a love for what I had just rejected for years. And, and that's just a love for the English language. Hmm. That when you stand to preach, there's only one thing you have going for you, and it's what's coming out of your mouth. And he gave me such a love for the English language that I, 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 you know, my parents had tried to drill that in me. My teachers had tried to drill that in me. And I just didn't, I just wanted to play football and that kind of thing. And whatever R.C. Sproul was selling, I'm buying. And he also taught me a lot about just more communication in general. Um, so I, he, he's, he, he's, he was a titanic figure. To eat a meal with R.C. Sproul is like a life event. My wife will not fly in an airplane unless we're going to Orlando because she'll get to eat dinner with R.C. like three or four nights in a row. And he's Martin Luther, table talk. He's got to have a full entourage of people, and he's the funniest Christian I've ever known. And MacArthur is the most serious Christian <laughs> I've, I've ever known. So MacArthur's Calvin and Sproul's Luther. That's just the way that it is. And MacArthur, you either love him or you hate him. No one's indifferent about MacArthur. With R.C., you love him, even if you disagree with him. And there were some things I needed to learn from that on how to endear yourself and to choose, wi <clears throat> choose wisely which hills you die on. And you don't want to go hunting with someone who shoots at everything. Uh, and you don't want to be around someone who argues on everything. And, and R.C. had an amazing ability to try to find common ground with people that did not even agree with him. And he has a different style of preaching that, I mean, he wouldn't let you use any notes. And I use notes. And you preach in his pulpit, and literally the little platform where you put your Bible down is like about this big. <laughs> and he preaches like from a little pocket Bible with no notes. 
and he just reads some commentaries on Saturday night and goes to sleep. And he goes to church, and it just starts spinning out of him. But it's, he's, his brilliance is just extraordinary. And I tell you, it helps to teach systematic theology for 25 years. Those are the guardrails. So you're not going to be veering off and saying something wacky. And so that's RC. And yeah, what a blessing for me. And then John MacArthur, and I've just been with, I came here from MacArthur's church. I preached at MacArthur's church on Sunday night and Monday morning flew here. Um, I mean, he's really probably the most dominant of all the influences, but he came last. Adrian and Chris will lay in the foundation and Sproul and then a man named James Montgomery Boyce who had a huge influence in my life and came and preached for me several times. Um, those two Presbyterians have something, had something that I didn't have that I desperately needed. A love for church history, um, the use of the English language. Boyce was an English major at Harvard, um, which is interesting. Uh, Piper was an English major at Wheaton. MacArthur has, was an English minor. The use of the English language is so desperately an essential asset for any preacher. And I think that's part of Spurgeon's genius is the use of the English language. But MacArthur had really had took me under his wing in a very personal way. And um, I've traveled the country with him preaching. He's taken me overseas with him preaching. Um, I've gone to Grace Community Church more than anyone who's not on staff at Grace Community Church. So I, I go out maybe six times a year and preach and teach in the seminary. But MacArthur's, he's a detailed man. Um, he, he is an exegetical, linguistic, historical background, grammar, syntax, Man, and God's in the details in this text. And also just the power of cross-references, the analogia scriptura, the analogy of scripture. Um, man, I, I have learned so much from just sitting on the front pew at Grace Community Church and listening to him. And then having to go up and preach after him. And that, that has an effect of elevate, elevating your game. And Jason, you know, you used to play basketball. I mean, you play against a championship team. You, you, you've got to elevate your game. And, and, you know, you preach with MacArthur and Sproul and people like that. You, you've got to bring your A game. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you, you've got to, you know, you've got to rise to the occasion. And so they, and especially MacArthur, has, has really almost forced me to, to, to be better. Yeah, so that leads me to my next question. How has your preaching changed or not changed over the past, whatever, 40-plus years? Well, 1 Timothy 4.15 says that your progress should be evident to all. 
And so you're preaching in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. You must see progress. Or there's regression. No one is standing still and they're preaching. You're either getting better or you're really sliding back. And I think by the grace of God, I have improved, but I had so much <laughs> that I needed to improve. Um, I'll have, people will ask me to preach on something that I preached. They heard me preach at a conference and they'll ask me to come to their conference and preach that same message. So I'll have my secretary print out all my notes for when I've preached that. And I'll see my notes when I was in my 30s. And, 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 and those are just quite frankly awful. <laughs> um, I mean, they're so thin. It looks like a Cliff, Net, Cliff Notes version of something. There's so much white space, and it's just not well-developed, and, and it's cumbersome. At times, it's dense. It's Anyway, and then I'll, I'll see the same set of notes, and I never preach the same set of notes twice. Um, I see in my 40s, and you know what? I mean, I can actually see some progress. Um, it's simpler as far as being able to follow it, yet I've developed it better, and I can tell I have a better grasp of theology and what is the theology in this passage. Remember Lloyd-Jones said, what is preaching? It is theology on fire. So we are doctrinal preachers with application. And then in my 50s, I can see it better, 60s. I'm now 70. So... There's both a, a simplicity as well as a, a density, which are juxtaposition, but um, I think I would be easier to follow. I used to have subpoints under main headings and then subpoints, and it's just like this has got to be, should, it probably was too hard to track and follow, take notes. I also had three English teachers in my first church that I pastored who were retired these ladies would write down every grammatical mistake <laughs> that I would make. They're a bunch of little legalists. <laughs> and they would be waiting for me out in the lobby after I preached. Seriously. And it was like receiving a, a, a report card from the president every Sunday. But they were straining the pulp out of me. They were getting the grammatical flaws and I, and I think when you grow up in the South, there, there are some grammatical flaws. No. <laughs> <laughs> I instead of me and things like that and uh, plural verb and singular subject, things like that. Um, Ain't but, that a shame? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I'm back in Mobile. <laughs> um, so, I, I, you know, I, I think that there's better word choices I think there's better restraint at times. I think I used to, with cross-references, be gone too long to a cross-reference. And I use the analogy with my students, you, you need to dance with the girl you take to the dance. Don't, don't invite one girl to the dance and you spend the evening dancing with someone else. I don't know if I can use that illustration. Yeah, that that metaphor doesn't not. compute here. Well, <laughs> um, it works with me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and you just, you need to stick with your text. And too many guys just go off on journeys and just try to say everything that, that comes into their mind to say. And I remember one elder in my church in Mobile, I asked him to preach for me on a Sunday night, and he said he would only do it if I would review his manuscript. 
And I did, and I took out my red pen and just X'd out about 80% of his sermon and handed it back. His wife was in tears <laughs> and handed it back to him. And I said, the goal of this sermon, every sermon is a one-point sermon. You may have three homiletical headings. You may have four homiletical headings, but there is one driving point. You need to be able to pour this sermon through a keyhole. You need to have tunnel vision on what is the dominant thrust of this sermon. And that'll tell you what your introduction needs to be, etc. And so, uh, you know, I, I think over the years I've learned how to tighten that and not ramble and go off on a, on a journey away from the text for too long. There are legitimate, helpful cross-references, um, but you need to learn how to, to limit if you're actually going to go someplace and stay there for, a, you know, some period of time. Yeah, it can be very helpful. I, when I preached Sunday night at MacArthur's church, I preached the, the eight Beatitudes, so you can imagine I just had to speed through that. But what saved that sermon was going to, to Luke 18 and the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, which made the Beatitude, the first four Beatitudes, just literally come along. I couldn't have, I couldn't have come up with a better illustration. And so going to that cross-reference actually was like the gunpowder in, in that sermon that made it like sing. So there is, you do need to do that. And I went to that for a while, but that was the only one. You got to stay on message and, and stay, you got to swim in the river and, and not be going off into other tributaries. Last question. Um, what do you hope to see out of a new generation of preachers, this place and beyond? Hmm. <sighs> Real Bible preachers who are like married to a text of Scripture who stop giving me boatloads of illustrations and who stop being culture warriors. The last sermon Martin Luther ever preached, the punchline of the sermon was, God put the power in the word. And that really, sola scriptura, that was the message of the Reformation. We need illustrations and we need cultural critique. I want to be known for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where the power is. The power to save and the power to sanctify and the power to strengthen. So for a new generation... It's both substance and style. The substance has got to be pure, and to use R.C.'s word, unvarnished truth. And when the service is over and you're standing at the front door, the greatest compliment you will ever get is not, you're a great preacher. It's, what a great God we have. We need more God in the sermon. We have such little preaching on God. And so they need to say to you, ever since you came to be our pastor, God is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We have little God preachers today. We need big God preachers.
So that would be my desire. And for it to come, I, I think preachers today have been almost neutered. They're trying to be cool hipsters. They're trying to be cool communicators. They, they, they want the pulpit to become like a talk show. Um, and we don't have heralds anymore. We, we don't have men who caruso, proclaim, declare. The word was used of a town crier. I tell you what, Adrian Rogers was a herald. W.A. Criswell was a herald. Today we have either lecturers in the pulpit. Lecturing is great in the classroom. It stinks to heaven in the pulpit. Um, young man went to, came to Spurgeon and said, why don't people come to hear me preach? He said, here's what you do. You douse yourself with gasoline strike a match and set yourself on fire. People come and watch you burn. Well, the point of that was, you need to get on fire for God, young man. And it needs to come out of you. You don't need to hide that passion. So we, we need more passion in the pulpit, and we need more persuasion, the Greek word pytho. Uh, I think there's just too much. Just here, you make it, you decide what you want to do. No, Paul sought to win people to Christ. I've said, I say to my students, I said, I think we're so scared of Charles Finney, and rightly so, the man was a heretic, that we've swung the pendulum so far in the other direction away from Charles Finney, we don't even have a heartbeat in the pulpit. So preaching, we need to come back to actually preaching Young man asked Martin Lloyd-Jones the difference between teaching and preaching. Lloyd-Jones said, young man, if you don't know the difference between teaching and preaching, it's obvious you've never heard preaching. Because if, you, if you've heard preaching, you know the difference between teaching and preaching. All true preaching starts out with teaching. It stands on the shoulders of teaching, but it reaches higher and it goes further. And it's intended to do something to the listener. So we need that kind of preaching. Um, I mean, could you preach without an overhead? Could you preach without an object you're holding? Could you preach with, without just using your library voice? I mean, could you actually stand up and preach? And we used to call pastors, we used to call them preacher. There's so little preaching today. We've canceled Sunday night preaching. We've canceled Wednesday night preaching. We have shortened Sunday morning preaching. We have canceled Bible conferences. The average church member sits under such little preaching. And I think most preachers will never even come close to reaching their potential as a preacher because they preach so little. If you only preach 30 minutes once a week, you're not going to get there. You're going to have a very low ceiling over your head. If you're trying to learn how to play the violin, do you think more practice or less practice would help you get to Carnegie Hall? If you were trying to learn how to, how to get on the PGA golf tour to feed your family, do you think more practice at golf or less practice would get you on the professional golf tournament? Well, the answer is so obvious, it doesn't need to be answered. More practice. The average preacher preaches so little that that's why Johnny can't preach. 
quote the title of the book. He just preaches so little. So we, we need even preaching back in the church. We have so little preaching. We have everything but preaching. So I, I commended Dr. Allen just even for our chapel service we just had. I mean, thank you. We only had two hymns. I got up to preach. I mean, usually people want me to model expository preaching in a seminary, and they'll sing five songs, and I've got, you know, 18 minutes to model expository preaching. And it's just like, you're your own worst enemy. So, I mean, thank you for clearing the runway today to allow time for somebody to even preach, even though it was only church history. Um, so we just need a generation of actual preachers. We just don't have many preachers. We have talkers. We have lecturers. We have communicators. We have life coaches. We have gurus. We have counselors. We have in the pulpit. I mean, on and on and on and on. We just don't have preachers. So the train does not have an engine. It, the, the train is just waiting for the downgrade to get some movement. Well, I want to thank you for... <laughs> that's all I have to say, okay? That's it. That's it. Yeah, no, I mean, I could keep going on that. But I, I thank you for the question. I, I know I've gone too far, but that's what preachers do. That's right. No, I, I'm tremendously thankful for your kindness to me over the years, many kindnesses, and then your gift of your time this week. And we love you. We appreciate you, praying for you, believe in you, um, rooting for you as you leave here. And so look forward to having you back. So would you guys join me in thanking Dr. Lawson? Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.